0: You know I was just sitting there thinking about the message that I have to preach. It's uh the world around us does affect us. It uh it influences us. And and you find this this difficulty at times you're you're spiritually minded, you're heavenly minded and and yet and yet you live in the world and and the world is the world is is constantly trying to latch on to you and and influence you in in many ways, and at times that can get that can get overwhelming. It it can create responses in, in your in your heart. And I was uh, was working this past week, and I heard a, a message on the radio, very timely from the Book of Matthew about the difficulty of the days in which we are, you know, we're called to live. And of course, that's all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. There's a theme from from the, the the front of the Bible all the way to the end, about how god 's people will face opposition and persecution and difficulty and and that you 're to live separate and all of those kind of things but it but it was the day after the whole Oregon uh, murder situation it was It was around the same time that I just watched the the, the the live um, address by Bibi Netanyahu to the UN about Iran. If you didn't watch that, I would encourage you uh, to do so. Even uh, if, if you want to learn how to uh, you know how to speak, it is powerful. With the knowledge of all that and all the global issues in the back of my mind, as a human being, you know, I'm listening to this message about Matthew, and and then I heard something about the the next. Presidential debate, and, and I was reminded with all that going on, my mind was drawn to the bullpen of what we've got to step up to the plate to deal with all of that on, on both sides of the aisle. And, and, you know, I can't tell you that I was very much comforted by, by that. And yet as I listened to the Word of God, I was greatly comforted. His truth, His promises, His firm control... And I want to encourage you in the, in the same direction this morning. The, the theme is about sola scriptura, scripture alone. And, and it's not just a mantra, it's, it's what we live by. Jesus, when tempted by Satan, quoted, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And you and I live by every word that proceeds out of the the mouth of God. Nobody should have to convince you as a Christian to believe the Bible, look to the Bible, follow the Bible, want to listen to the Bible. That's an evidence that you are a Christian, right? That's what Peter says, that you yearn like a baby for the sincere milk of the Word. Now, the Bible talks about being a babe in Christ and being mature in Christ. He's not making that analogy there. He's saying one of the evidences of salvation is that you hear the Word. You hear the words of God and you long to hear the words of, uh, of God. And yet we live in, in uncertain times. We approach the times in which we believe in and uh, we live in and, and it's easy to get, to get knocked off sinner. And, and without a, that sure footing and be reminded of that, of that sure footing, you can look around, you can get overwhelmed, you can get fearful, you can say you don't know what to do. Adrian Rogers said a Christian should navigate life with a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other. I'd say amen. If you have the newspaper only, you're going to be in trouble. And you need the newspaper along with the Bible to help other people interpret what's going on. I would say to you, while that's absolutely true, a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other, the order in which you look at them will determine whether you have peace or travail. The news app, the cable tells us it's hopeless. Everyone says, follow me or hunker down. And so the Bible tells us what followers of Jesus must do in, in any times, and specifically in our times. And there are specific times. So I want you to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I want you to see what God says about the days in which we, we live. One of my favorite quotes is attributed to Moshe Dayan, one of the controversial generals of of Israel. And when I asked, how could Israel accomplish, not be defeated by all of the armies around them, he simply said, the God who was is, and the God who did does. And the Bible shows us this very thing. The God who was is. And the God who did in the past for Israel and Jesus Christ walking amongst his disciples and all of our posterity up till today, or history up till today, I should say, testifies of that. And the God who did things in the past is still doing things today, and the Bible shows us how... God's plan unfolds and in the pages of scripture you can see that you can see how God's plan unfolds the bible marches from the fall in the garden to the cross of calvary and from the cross to the end of the ages and and we are living in in the latter days we are living in a in a period of time now when i say it's the latter days that's not a conclusion i'm drawing by looking at the world around me. I promise you, I don't have a bunker under my home. I don't have gallons of water or anything else. I do have plenty of guns and ammunition, because that's because I like to hunt. It's a period clearly defined by God in His Word, and we are living in it. And to help us see, help, for God to help us to see how His plan unfolds, the Bible uh, is 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 on a timeline, if you will there's distinct periods now God doesn't need a timeline because because it was as good as done for him as soon as he decreed it. but for us god's redemptive plan has clear turning points now it's probably not as precise as some of the as some of the the clearly marked old dispensational charts that we see, but there are dispensations that that are there i like to say if you stand back and look at the storyline of the Bible as a whole and you look at the, the film reel or the panorama, you will see these, these large mountain peaks jutting up of how God deals with, with mankind, these different points of redemption. And there are similarities in every period and there's also differences in every period. Regardless of the period that, that you're in, in the Bible, there are similarities. In the last days or the latter days that we live in, it's the same as it was before the flood. God is the same, man's need is the same, and the way of salvation is the same. Malachi 3, 6, the Lord says, I am the Lord, I change not. Man's need is no different today than it was in that period. Genesis 6, 5 Says, after the fall, the hearts of men were continually evil. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only continually evil. Man didn't get better after the flood. It's the same heart today. Romans 3 verses 10 through 18, written in the New Testament, talking about how there's none righteous, no not one, and all have sinned. It's a quote from the book of Psalms, Psalm 14. You can go look at it. Old Testament, New Testament, exactly the same, because man is basically the same. And God's way of salvation is the same. The only hope that mankind has is God's grace alone. That grace through faith alone in Christ alone. And salvation in the Old Testament is just like today. It's just on that side of the cross rather than on this side of the cross. It was faith in God's promise of a Redeemer who was to come. Abraham. That's what Paul argues in the book of Romans and what he argues in Galatians. Abraham was 400 plus years prior to Moses, prior to the law. Salvation in the Old Testament. Jews weren't saved by the law. They were saved by faith. They expressed their faith by, by obeying the law. And the New Testament salvation the way it's described that it, salvation comes to those who place their faith in the work of Christ. That is finished. It's accomplished. It's done. And while there are similarities during these period of times, there's, there's also distinctions. Now, you could provide much greater detail. And again, my purpose is not to give you the seven dispensations or whatever else, but just to help you to think in a chronological, linear fashion, in the way that God is unfolding... redemptive plan there is no linear with God he's eternal there's no beginning or end but for us it's being worked out here in time there there's the period of looking toward Christ's coming in God's primary uh methodology or vehicle or or way in which he revealed himself was through a people God's people God revealed Himself through a chosen people, the Jews, and they had His law and they were distinct from the world. They, they were to be a light to the Gentiles. They weren't to keep it unto themselves or live unto themselves. The Great Commission begins in, in Genesis 12 and with the call of Abraham. And they were to be the light unto the Gentiles until the true light would come into the world. Isn't that how the book of John starts? Jesus Christ, the true light, has come into the world. But what did the Jews do? They He came into His own and His own received Him not. They rejected that light. And he would come in their midst. He would come from their midst. Salvation is of the Jews, meaning the Messiah would come from Abraham and David. And, and then when Jesus came during Christ's earthly ministry, was that not a turning point? I mean, if you want to say, where's the Mount Everest in the range? It's there. It's when Christ came. God's Savior is how He's revealing Himself to the world. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews says? What you've heard about Him, here He is. You want to know who God is? You want to see who God is, what He's like? Look to Jesus Christ. He is He's the He's the God-man. He's God in human flesh. And Jesus proclaimed the good news that salvation had come. John prepared the way for the Messiah. And Jesus says, it's here, it's now, it's me. He was the fulfillment. He was God. Salvation that was needed would be accomplished through His perfect sinless life, through His substitutionary death on your behalf on the cross, and His victorious resurrection over death, hell, and the and the grave. And then there's the this last period after Jesus ascends into heaven. And God is working now through His church. He still has a plan for Israel. That's why my heart rejoices even whenever I I see the Jewish people and think about the Jewish people. God's not done with the Jewish people. The church didn't absorb Israel. It didn't replace it. But right now, His primary work is through His church. And it's to make the Jewish people jealous. And even so that some of them might be saved. And after Jesus returns to heaven, He commissioned His followers, that's you, that's me, to preach the good news of salvation in His name until He comes again for His church. And then you'll see the birth pangs of the end to come. And the period between Christ's ascension and His coming for His church is called the the last days. And these are the times that we're living in now. And the Bible tells us that these are perilous times. And if you don't understand the times in which you live and you don't understand where you fit into God's redemptive plan, you can get lots of things messed up. You can get salvation messed up. You can get how you're to do ministry messed up. You'll neglect God's church and and you may even uh, approach the world in, in different ways. And yet in 2 Timothy chapter 3... The Apostle Paul in his last letter to Timothy before he leaves describes these days and he tells for us, tells us as believers what we're to be aware of and what we're to do. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 1 through verse 17. It contains the passage about the Bible, the Word of God, passage that we would read on a day that we're talking about sola scriptura. Look at what he says here in verse 1. Verses 1 through 9 is the first division. This is the perilous times and, and the, the poisonous men that are there. It describes the days in which we live. Verse 1 of chapter 3, but know this, in the latter days, in the last days, in the end times, perilous times will, will come. For men will be lovers of themselves and lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. From such, turn away." And he goes on through verse 9. And in the second part, he shows us what believers are to do in the midst of this world. He describes the days in verses 1 through 7. And then he gives us the demands of a Christian. Demands of those living in those days in verses 10 through 17. But you, watch how he changes that in verse 10. But you, I'm not talking about you in verses 1 through through 9. But you, church, you believers, you man of God, Timothy, and you all, church of God, here this morning, you have carefully followed after a specific doctrine and manner and purpose and faith and long-suffering and love and perseverance and persecutions, afflictions. And then he talks about what happened to him. Yo yea, Verse 12, all who desire to live godly. How do I know that you can apply this not just to Timothy but to us? Verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer in the midst of this age. And evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, you're not those evil men. You're not those imposters. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And then he goes into the passages about the Bible. Here's how... I would outline verses 1 through 17 and speak to you today. This is what God says to us. Perilous times and poisonous men demand that the people of God trust in the Word of God. Now, you say that's a no-brainer. Well, it is a no-brainer. And, and I would say if you lived in a vacuum without the world constantly conforming you, constantly floating philosophies that you may not even know are bad philosophies, then, then you might just be able to read this once or twice, once every now and then. But that's not the case. You live in a world constantly trying to press you into a mold, constantly trying to get something by you. And you have to be reminded, just like Timothy was reminded, about the perilous times and the poisonous men and what you're to do. As the people of God, you're to trust in the in the word of of God. He begins with these perilous times in verse one. He says, "There's a there's perilous times. There's the warning of the time, the period of the of the time, and then there's the description of the time that he begins with in verse one. Look at chapter three, verse one. Know this, but know this. Be aware of this. He begins with this warning." He starts with this declaration, be assured of this. Don't be surprised, Paul is saying, by what is taking place during our time. After the ascension of Christ. This is not before Christ comes. This is not during the earthly ministry of Christ. This is after Christ has ascended. And you have been commissioned to go into this world, this world, in this period, before He comes again. Don't be surprised by what is taking place. It's not a maybe so. It's assuredly so. And so when you turn on the TV like you did this past week and you hear about everything that is taking place, Paul says, know that these things will happen and that your task is to be faithful, not fearful. Now, Paul's not saying this so that so that you can just crawl under a rock and do nothing and say, well, whatever's going to be, whatever's going to be. That's stupid. That's not even taught in the Bible. That's, that's fatalism. But it also doesn't mean that you go out there and you, you charge hell with a water pistol, as they say. It means that you go out there and charge the world with the word of God. You know this, he says. Don't twist in the wind of events. Trust. Be like the 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 old Scottish aunt that Moody told about, who had a young Scottish student in the university who was rooming with her, and 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 he one day the student came home and said to her, Auntie you know, this, this the, the verse in Hebrews that you so often quote, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Well, I found out today that there are five negatives in the Greek that's in that verse. And it reads like this. I will never, 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 never leave thee. And the old auntie said, oh, one of them is good enough for me, laddie. <laughs> because he has said, I will never leave thee. Therefore, we may boldly say, I will not fear. It's, it's a warning. Not to make us fear, but to give us faith. When you see the Bible confirming what's happening in the world, you, you, you have the newspaper in on one end, you have the Bible in the other, which one trumps. Well, the newspaper just confirms what the Bible is saying to us. These are those kinds of, of days. Then it, it, he describes the period of time. It's the, it's the last days. But know this. That in this period of time, in the last days, this is a reference that Paul gives numerous times. Acts 17, 2.17 describes it as the period that started with the work of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and will continue. It simply means the last days on God's redemptive calendar. It's not the beginning days when the Messiah's people are being formed so that they would give birth to Him. It's not the days that... The time of the bridegroom, it's, it's the days in which the bridegroom goes to prepare a place for you. Who's you? That's the church. And so that the bride will go out into the world and so the bride can be prepared for when the bridegroom returns. The last days means days in which nothing else needs to be completed before he returns. That's the days in which you minister. And that should excite you. It should excite you. You know why it should excite you? Because you are one second, one trumpet blast away from the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible says, isn't it? Now think about that. Think about how dull and faithless we are. Even as I say that to you, you are one second, one trumpet blast away from Jesus Christ returning. And as I say that to you, it falls upon your heart dead, dull. It's like a gong. Because our hearts are are, are dead and faithless, it tells us that we're not in the Scriptures enough. It tells us that we're too affected by by the world. We say, oh yeah, I know Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming morning, night, or noon. He could come right now. There's nothing else that has to happen in these latter days. He'll split the sky and call us to Himself. And while that's exciting future, these days are called perilous. That last bullet point there, there's the description of the time. Know this, there's the warning to build faith. In the last days, that's the description of the time. Perilous times will come. The word is difficult. Difficult times will come. Grievous times will come. The term is, is used in Matthew 8, 28, describing the demoniac of the Gadarenes, and it's translated there as violent. What are the times going to be like? It is going to be like the way that the the demoniac at the Gadarenes behave. That's the way these times are going to be marked by. Can you see that in the world today? Plutarch, the Greek writer outside of the Bible, used this same term to describe an ugly, infected, and dangerous wound, one commentator says. These days are ugly. They're infected. They're dangerous days. And this is how God describes the days we're, we're to live in. And so while the thought of Christ coming lifts our soul, we must not be naive about the world in which we live in and its opposition. The times are violently hazardous. How utterly foolish then it is to, to try to think that we can gain acceptance from the world or to think unbelievers will ever befriend the church. What complete nonsense it is to try to use some type of strategy for ministry or church that, that attempts to make the gospel palatable to a world that, that hates it. Your only tool is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the the only thing that that will work. None of that. The the times are are filled with with poisonous men, and in verses through 9 he describes their characteristics their deception and their condemnation what makes these times perilous deadly and dangerous because the people that live in them heaven won't be that way there won't be any sin in heaven there won't be backbiting in heaven there won't be any gossip in heaven there won't be any difficulties in heaven there won't be any devil in heaven there won't be any unsaved in heaven There will be those redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, given new minds and new hearts. But until that time, there are poisonous men. He says in verse 2, for men, for men. Why will these be perilous? For men. He's describing for men will be lovers of themselves. And he begins to describe their characteristics. Now, I'm not going to give you a list of everything's there for time's sake, but I think there's three areas in which you can focus on. There's there's the, the love of self. There's, there's a description of the characteristics of how they love themselves, their characteristics about how they're indifferent toward others, and their characteristics about the, how they hate God. There's, their characteristics about self, about how they deal with other people, and then how they relate to God, and all of that is, is there. They love themselves. Paul begins with, in verse 2, for there, they will be lovers of themselves. Philatas where we get Philadelphia and the pronoun autos. People in this age love themselves. They live for themselves. And you can see that how they behave. They're boasters, they're proud, and they're blasphemous. Why are they boasters and why are they uh, proud and why do they blaspheme? (laughs) Because it's all about me. Their God is the one that they see in the mirror. They're lovers of money, Paul says. They amass things to consume on their own desires. They're driven for material gain, for personal ease. They're boasters, proud blasphemers. He says, they boast of their accomplishments. They're lifted up because of them, so they're proud. And they disregard the one who made them and gives them the ability, so they blaspheme God with their lives. They don't care about God. That's what he says there. They're indifferent toward others. I would begin there with the with the whole disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. In the list, when he starts dealing with, with others... He starts with the most natural relationship known to mankind, the relationship between a parent and a child. Because they love themselves, they have a disdain for, for authority. Can't you see that in a child? We joke about it. You don't have to teach a child to, to disobey. They just go along with you until you decide to tell them to just not do something that they want to do. <laughs> Even the most natural and basic structure for which God has built into creation is disregarded. They're indifferent. They're unthankful and they're unholy, he says. They don't give thanks because they're proud and, and they think they accomplished it themselves, so they're unthankful. Why do you give thanks to God? You know, you're, what is it, little Jack Horner sat in the corner? You know the nursery rhyme? My mom used to teach me those nursery rhymes. He stuck in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said what? Man, am I a great guy. That's what he said. I'm a a good person. I just drink a beer every now and then. I'll give the shirt off my back to somebody else. I'm a pretty good guy. You know what you're saying? I don't need God. I don't need Christ. I might be bad, but compared to everybody else, I'm a pretty good guy. Is that what the Bible says about us? The Bible says that we are bankrupt before the Lord. We have nothing to offer God. Even the good things that we do, we try to take credit for. We're unthankful and we're unholy. The, The period of time people are unholy. This leads to an unholy life. They're unloving, unforgiving, slanders. They don't do for others what is needed. They're unloving. It's only what is convenient and serves their own purposes. You think it was convenient and served Christ's purposes by going to the cross? He did for us what we needed, not what we desired. They're unforgiving. When wrong, they show no mercy, and the Bible says they'll receive none. They assassinate the character of others with their mouths. They're slanderers. They're without self-control, and they're brutal. They, there's no restraint in their pursuit of pleasure. They're lovers of pleasure. They're haters of God, this last part. They despise good. They're traitors. They're headstrong. They're haughty. The poisonous men of the world, the unsaved, they they don't just do wrong. They hate right. They despise good. Have you noticed the response? I mean, just think of it on a logical basis. Think, Think of the Ten Commandments. Who wouldn't want another human being to keep the Ten Commandments compared, you know, in relation to to you or your family? How horrible. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, all of those things. And what is the reaction to that good from the unsaved world? Violent? Hatred? What a blessing it is to have God-ordained Marriage between a man and a woman. What a blessing the family is. What a blessing all the church is. What a blessing those, the the ministries that churches do. And what is the response? There's a, men don't just do wrong, they hate right of this age. Spurgeon said, if a man has lived in the dark all of his life, do you wonder that the light makes his eyes ache and therefore he hates it? I was getting out of bed this morning and I went in the closet. And it was in the dark. I was not trying to, to wake someone up and uh, I bent down to pick something up and whenever I did, my my shoulder hit the light in the closet and flipped the light on. It's fluorescent, instant. You know, it's like blinds me. So I'm trying to get it off, not to wake anybody up. And I was thinking about this quote. Don't find it strange that they respond to the gospel and to you and your righteousness that way? I would say if unbelievers are not are not affected by your life in any way, you might want to look at your life. Don't look at the unbeliever. They're traitors. They don't keep even the most basic loyalties because they're they're loyal to themselves. What's worse than a traitor? They're high-minded. They're headstrong. They're proud. They think God's truth is a quaint notion to be disregarded. One of these days, you Christians, you'll see... You'll understand, it'll be, just, it'll be just like civil rights. It'll just be just like racism, which truly was sinful. You, you, you'll, you'll get it. The church will come around to same-sex marriage. You just need to evolve. You just need to get smarter. Isn't that the, the tone that you hear today? High-minded, proud. They think God's truth is something to evolve above. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the summary statement. brings us back to the beginning. They're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He begins with, for men will be lovers of themselves. And these same men are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. The men of our time worship the God of self, and therefore they bow at their own altar and not the true creators. And look at what he says in in verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power. They have no power, only puff. They're empty shells. You ever played that stick of chewing gum trick on somebody else? Used to be, you know, you pulled out the the double mint or spearmint or juicy fruit or whatever it was and then you, you carefully fold up the silver wrapper and you you know put it back down in there and, you, and then you stick it up about that far and you go to your brother. Hey, you want a piece of gum, right? Pulls it out. Hey, there's nothing in there. Or maybe you, you blow up the juice box. My kids, you know, when they, when they had the, the cardboard juice box with the straw in it, you know, they, they blow it back up, pretend that there was something in there. That's the way Paul's describing the, the world, no matter how pious that, that they look. These are people, they, 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 they have wrapper but no gum. They're full of air. And look at what he says. From such people turn away. It doesn't mean don't take the gospel to them. It means don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't get your news from them. Don't follow after their ways of life. Don't imitate them. Because you're the people of God. There's deception. There's the warning. From such, turn away. and You see the characteristics. You don't run with them. You run them through with the gospel because they have deceptive influence. Look at verse 6. brother. this sort those who creep into households and make captive gullible women loaded down with sins led away by by various lusts. He's not just picking on ladies there. Ladies, you're gullible. Men, you're gullible too. He's talking about a specific issue here. Ladies, you're particularly gullible and and in a in a vulnerable state. If you find yourself in the same way that this these women here, they're, they're loaded down with sins and led by various lusts. They're always learning and never coming able to the knowledge of the truth. Their characteristics shows why they're this way. They creep into household. They're angels of light. This describes uh, described someone who's weak in the truth and weak in virtue. And the world has a seductive influence. They make captives. When you listen to their ways and you invite them in their heads and you take their empty philosophies, the person's described here as undiscerning, they're gullible, they're unclear in conscience, they're loaded down with sins and they're, they're uncontrolled, they're led about by, by lusts. There are times whenever I would love to be my dog. I mean, it just lays around, gets his belly, she gets her belly rubbed, she eats, she sleeps, she has a warm place, and then there are other times that I'm glad I'm not a dog, like when she can't go beyond certain boundaries or I have her on a leash, especially whenever she does the wrong thing and she crosses the boundary and she finds out real fast where the boundary is, but just being led by led by a leash, there are times where she doesn't want to go where somebody wants to lead her. It's a description here of being of of being led away by various lusts. we're going to talk about lust tonight, and it's not just going to be about about immorality it's going to be about lust in general. Well, that'll be a topic but but here, the people of this world are led on a leash by their lusts, things that have taken hold of their heart, things that have gripped them, things that they they're controlled by, totally controlled by. What a horrible way to live. Don't let that be your description. Be discerning. Be forgiven. Be free and led by Christ. They lead nowhere. Look at verse 7. Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he gives this example from the Old Testament. Just like Janus and Jambres resisted Moses. This is condemnation. He gives this biblical example of the magicians of Pharaoh who opposed Moses as God's representative. They, resist God. they resisted God's truth. There were symbols of that. And they're condemned. They're justly condemned. Men of corrupt minds, look at the end of verse 8, disapproving concerning the faith. They're of a depraved mind. It's a, in, in the original, it's a perfect passive participle. It's a continuous, unalterable condition. These are reprobates. God no longer strives with them. Because they pursued their opposition so long. Be careful. Be careful. The gospel is an invitation to you, but it's also a command. You stand and refuse the living God, his command to believe in his son, and repent too long, your heart can grow hard. And oh, I've seen God break the hardest hearts, mine being one of them. But the warning here is don't trifle with God. Because there may come a time whenever you're past feeling. There may come a time when that heart gets so hard that you won't want to hear the truth. I've witnessed to people like that. Pleaded with them to come to Christ, but their hearts had no desire, no longer tender. What once caused them to weep or even have a twinge of conviction was not there any longer. And sadly, they've since perished. And Paul says, because these have rejected the truth over and over, they're rejected by God. Look at the end of verse 8. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith. They're disqualified regarding the faith. It means they're rejected. It's a word used for metals that didn't pass the test of purity. They're disregarded. They're described as counterfeit. But they will progress no further for their folly will be manifest to all. The most articulate sinner, the, the most evil man on the planet that looks like he is conquering and winning, one day will be exposed for exactly what they are. Fill in the blank. Vladimir Putin. The, the guy who's running Iran. George Soros. Whoever you can think of the one that seems like they're winning, the one that seems like they're getting away with what they're doing, one day their folly will be manifest, not just before God, but before all. They'll be exposed. As theirs also was, Janice and Jambres. Do you remember when that happened? When they looked like that they were reproducing the miracles and then fell flat on their face? And while these men are bad examples, Paul gives us a good one to to follow. I'll blow through this very quickly. There's the people of God, verses 10 through 13. And then there is the Word of God that I'll end with. Look at verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. It is in these perilous times that we have a standard to follow, an example to follow. Paul has given us a good one. During perilous times amongst poisonous men, the people of God must follow the Word of God. Paul says, my doctrine. Give a specific body of truth to believe. It's non-negotiable. You don't reevaluate the definition of marriage because the culture does. You don't decide what works in the church, therefore that's the way that you go about doing ministry. You have a standard, there's a doctrine, and there's a way of life, and there's a that life has purpose and there's a faith, and there's long suffering and love and perseverance, and that life also has opposition. There's suffering to endure. Verses eleven through through 13, persecutions and afflictions. Don't think that you're going to live righteously. You're going to strive to follow after God resist the world, and the world's just going to sit by and let you do that. They're not. You're going to find suffering to endure. And just like Paul, we are to endure. Verse 12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And we endure because our hope is in the Lord it's in him it's not just Paul's experience it's it's all of Christ's followers in these last days and you won't suffer unless you're righteous notice what it says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus if you're milk toast, cream puff, go along with whatever happens in the world, you're going to find acceptance. You're not going to find any opposition. But it's much better to be rejected by the world than be rejected by God. Amen? It's hard. But we have a hope. Where's our hope? There's the last point. The people of God must trust in the Word of God verses 14 and 15 it educates unto salvation and it instructs in sanctification look at verse 14 but you they verse 13 is the transition but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse deceiving and de- being deceived but you flip side must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of wide knowing from whom you have learned them and what did you learn that from a childhood? You have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. It educates unto salvation. The Scriptures do. He tells Timothy to continue in what you've learned and have believed, knowing these writings that gave you the old, old story of Jesus and His love. Don't ever get too old, too learned, too sophisticated that you forget Jesus. Don't think that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so is a song just for children. It's a song for you. God is found in the love of Christ who gave Himself for us to wash away our sins. And that same Bible, once believed, is the only thing that you need to walk and grow. It, it, it instructs in sanctification. Oh, read the Gospel of John. Read the book of Romans. You're trying to lead someone to Christ. What do you say after they come to Christ? Oh, you don't need the Bible anymore. I you don't need the Gospel anymore. No. It instructs. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Look at Verse 17. Not the one who is coming to salvation, but the one who has found salvation. That the man of God, or woman of God, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Get instruction, sanctification—that's just a fancy name for growing. You becoming more and more like Jesus. Do you realize how many sales pitches you get a week? Try this. Try that. Sometimes you're pleased. Sometimes. Your hopes are dashed. He says you never have to question the trustworthiness of the Bible because it is the very breath of God that uttered its words. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It will never fail. You put your hope in the Word of God rather than everything that you feel and everything that you think. It's profitable for you. Teaching, reproof, correction, systematically instructs, it exposes bad thinking, it corrects us toward good thinking, and it trains us in righteousness, it brings us up in the ways of God, and the end result is maturity. The man of God, verse 17, may be complete, that's mature, thoroughly. Do you want to be mature? You don't want to be like the world. You don't want to be like the one who's who's ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge. Don't you want maturity? You don't want to be a baby? Go to the Word. Love the Word. Read the Word. Sit under the preaching of the Word. It's the Word that matures. It's not a system or a book or a person or a preacher. It's the Word. And it completely equips us. Thoroughly furnished. Thoroughly equipped. So that we can do all the work that is good, that is required in these perilous times amongst poisonous men. Paul says, Timothy, know this. In this period from the time that Jesus ascends until he raptures the church, until he comes, these are the last days. I'll be working through my church. I've sent you into the world. And in the midst of that world, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be perilous. And the entire world is going to be described in in this way. You don't be that way. You are the people of God, Timberlake, those of you who are born again. You are like Israel in some way, in the sense that you're the church. You're the the visible, gathered church here this morning in the midst of this community. And in this time in which you live, you must, you must build your lives upon the solid rock of Christ. You must look to the Bible. You must let it rebuke you. You must let it correct you. You must go to it first rather than the newspaper or the philosophies or your thoughts or otherwise. You must mature through the Bible so that you can stand. And I want you to notice how Paul ends this whole thing. Well, he begins a new thought. But look at what he says to Timothy after he describes the the times and the people of the times and the people of God and the Word of God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you, therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at His appearing. There's the coming. Here to do this, Timothy, until the day He appears and His kingdom comes, what are you to do? Preach the Word. Now watch. Do it in season and out of season. Do it before the last times and in the last times. Do it when they want to hear and when they don't want to hear. Do it whenever the Supreme Court rules one way and do it whenever the Supreme Court's overturned. Do it when there's a Democrat in the White House. Do it when there's a Republican in the White House. Do it if you are the only saved person amongst a a, a secular society in Los Angeles. Do it whenever there's a bunch of Christianized moral people in Lynchburg, most of which you think they're saved, a number of which don't even know what the gospel is. Preach the Word is what he says. And beyond that, you stand. So how about it, Christian? You shy away from the truth because the world denies it or rejects it. I, just like Paul, think better things of you. I know what you'll do. But you bow your heads.